think Louise, do keep that uh, page open. If you uh, have it, it's page 1220. Let's pray together. Lord, we pray that you would take us uh, into the heart of Jesus Christ this morning, that we might learn his character, learning his character, be examples of it in the world around us, and so come to that crown of victory that you have for each one. In Jesus' name, amen. Fight valiantly against sin, the world, and the devil. And remain faithful to Christ to the end of your life. It's a funny thing, a baptism. Uh, There's Bryony in the dress that her grandmother wore. All fluffy, shiny, and I uh, bear witness, very slippy cloth. (laughs) She's barely able to move for fabric. It's a sunny summer day. The family's looking forward to lunch with guests. And there we go, speaking words from another world, giving her her marching orders, fighting, soldiering, as though she was wearing steel rather than satin. And these are indeed her marching orders. And if the instruction weren't stark enough already, we make it more so by saying, remain faithful to the end of your life. This is a vow. It's a lifelong vow. Cheer up, Bryony, it's only until you die. There was a lot of death around when Peter was writing. Uh, Peter wrote to a Christian community in the letter we have in front of us this morning, under stress. It might have been active persecution, but it it may have been uh, more subtle than that. It may have been simply the discrimination, the marginalising that comes in a community when some refuse to acknowledge the the underlying basis to that society. In this case, the Christians were insisting that the idols around them were not God. Well, that was outrageous. Instead, Jesus Christ was. Whatever the intensity of the stress, Peter's letter is full of the language of suffering. This community was up against it and tempted to give up on this Christian business. And in case we think that's kind of far away and and long ago, it's worth remembering that the 20th century saw more uh, Christians, more Christian martyrs than all other centuries put together. Stress has not gone away around the world for Christian believers in the Church of God. Now consider what it means to be a pastor to a suffering community today to know your people's persecution and to be able to do so little about it. To know that you will lose people sliding away from the faith. To undertake the care of a community that seems helpless, hopeless kind of work. And to face your own inner fight at the same time against sin, the world and the devil. It must be a temptation to gather the community around about you to make it my church. The temptation must be to let rip on some of your more authoritarian aspects so that they'll at least do what you say. And so uh, Peter addresses himself here to the elders 
among you, the elders of the church. Later on, in verse 5, he addresses himself to the younger men, urging them to humility, claiming that the distinctive sin among younger men is pride. Well, fancy. But our attention today is on verse 4, and thus on the first four verses. If young men face pride because of their strength and their urgency, older men can face it because of their authority and status. Elders, third word in our text, chapter 5, verse 1. It's a fuzzy term. Peter says he's a fellow elder, so it does sound like something of a title. But then young men isn't a title, so maybe that just means older people then. So perhaps elders is just those who by by dint of age and experience, carry some responsibility for others. So don't think that this is only for vicars. Most of us carry responsibility for someone else in our lives. And the elders are urged in their responsibilities towards humility. And we need to kind of just jump in a little to the language that's being used here. The language used is that of sheep and shepherd. Throughout the Old Testament, the people of God are often described as sheep, those in need of responsible care. Those over them are to take after David, the shepherd king. He cares and he leads, he's gentle, he's tender, but he also guards and defends. He's strong and he's fierce. These elders now are, quote, to be shepherds of God's flock under their care. And Peter sets out three contrasts for good shepherding, worth our attention as we face responsibilities. Firstly, not because you must, but because you are willing, verse 2. No one in their right mind would really want pastoral responsibility for other Christians. Now, I have to be slightly careful here, and I'd ask you to remember that this is not just about me, but about nearly all of us, as we face responsibilities. But sheep are notorious in the Old Testament for a habit of wandering off. We say today of a difficult task that it's like herding cats. Actually, herding sheep isn't much different. Not Only a couple of weeks ago, I was up on a Welsh mountain, and they are extraordinarily stupid. Um, You watch them with kind of on a slope that they are within, uh, uh, you know, just if there's a morsel of grass that's just a bit too tender, you think they've gone. They're over the slope. And there's a great big dark blue lake at the bottom. They are notorious for wandering off. No one in their right mind would choose pastoral responsibility. And so if there's any kind of responsibility that we exercise, we exercise it because we're called to it which means that we have a choice to follow the call or not. We have uh, to be willing. It's not something we are compelled to. When feeling you want to have a good old moan about your lot and about those that you're responsible for, just remember that no one made you do it. You answered a call willingly. Secondly, not greedy but eager to serve. Again, verse 2. 
I guess it's always been the case. Christian responsibility often brings with it a degree of power and authority, power and authority that can be twisted towards personal gain. And the emphasis here is not so much on money, but on the greed for money. For money is the motivation. Instead of which, there should be the simple desire to serve God's flock, God's purposes for God's flock. They are his and not ours. Incidentally, if you ever find yourself in a congregation that has responsibility for paying its own minister, this does not offer an excuse for not offering a full financial support. The old classic prayer of such churches used to run, Lord, we'll keep him humble, you keep, we, we'll keep, it, you keep him humble, we'll keep him poor. But it's not a worthy ambition. It's not about there being money in the service of God. It's about being motivated by greed. Then thirdly, not lauding it, but being an example. I've seen congregations, not so much in this country, but I have seen congregations of the desperately poor abused by those who take advantage of their poverty so as they can uh, dispense some financial support there, a hand to a job there. They can basically manipulate others because of the power that they have. Those in dire straits can sometimes provoke pastors not to care and tenderness, but to its opposite, exploitation and abuse. No, says Peter, be an example. Any kind of example? Because sometimes we say to our kids, don't we, you're supposed to set an example. Yeah, but an example of what? Any kind of example? No, a very precise one. We've looked at the contrasts at the heart of the passage. To answer the business of an example, it makes sense to look at the kind of the envelope, the verses at the start and the end, because they're about Jesus. Notice how Peter starts. He could have said, I, um, I'm commanding you as an apostle. He doesn't. He says, I appeal to you as a fellow elder. He points out that his role derives from being a witness of Christ's sufferings. Not of Christ's ascension and lordship at this point in the argument. He wants them to remember that Jesus Christ himself suffered. There is glory ahead, but the focus is the suffering. Now that that word makes us think of direct persecution. And that will have taken its toll in Peter's church. But it's worth remembering that that external suffering, that persecution, it's easy to avoid. It's absolutely easy to avoid. Jesus could just have dropped his seemingly absurd claim to be the Messiah. That would have done it. Jesus' followers in Peter's day could just have gone along with the world in which they found themselves. It's easy to to get out of suffering. So the greatest suffering can come because of the internal struggles in which we determine that yes, today, this moment will be another moment when I fight valiantly. It's so much easier to give up. But the example urged on the elders is the example of Jesus. He could have given up, but he fought the fight to the end. He could have made his lordship obvious over heaven and earth, but he didn't lord it. And and he is offered now as an example to follow. And so before we go to the other end of the passage to finish, we just need to be clear on the story. 
that's at the heart of it, the story without which this passage makes no sense. Christian baptism, which we've had today, is into a pattern of following Jesus. Remember the the questions and the answers, I turn to Christ, I submit to Christ, I come to Christ. And all of those questions and answers are there because Christ, Jesus, is, we claim, worth following. He is set before us as the one who has now become the worthy Lord and King of a people, not because he grabbed authority, but because he showed to the ultimate degree the character of a God who loves to give himself. When Jesus is crucified, he is saving a world that doesn't need more good advice, it doesn't need more good leadership, it doesn't need more people to meddle with its affairs. The world is sick and needs saving because you are sick and I am and Bryony is. Everything that is wrong with the world runs through my own heart and yours and even hers at her age. I am adrift and I need finding. I am sinful and I need saving. I am sick and I need healing. I serve all kinds of idols and I need to belong to a heavenly kingdom. And Jesus comes as the climax of God's purpose for the world. Supremely, he is the one who fights valiantly, battling evil, bearing our pains. We learn from the Old Testament that he is wounded for our transgressions. He is bruised for our faults. He defeats death by his own death to present us to God. That's at the heart of any baptism, and it's at the heart of this passage. Because once he's exhausted the power of death, what else can death do? Nothing. And so he is raised. Death cannot hold him. He's raised to sit at the right hand of the Father from which he will once again appear. Now, all that's rather a lot to take on, especially if you've never heard it before. But it hinges on this claim that Jesus is victorious over death. Jesus rose. When we say to Bryony, to the end of your life, that's at the limit. It stops then, because after then there is something else. The one who conquers death must be the Lord and King forever. If Jesus rose, then this text and that action make sense. If he didn't, it's pointless, because then the chief shepherd, verse 4, would not appear then there is no glorious crown of victory for those who fought valiantly. Then everything just sort of fades away. Then everything runs absolutely contrary to the hope that Peter is setting out for us. Now, I wonder if it's possible, and perhaps some of you are asking this question, is it possible to have some of this hope, sort of without going all the way, without taking on all this kind of Jesus, rose and die for sin stuff? Can we at least be a little humble? Well, yesterday, the Commons Treasury Select Committee indicated it was less than thrilled with the evidence of Bob Diamond about the fixing of lending rates. There are rumours that the appointment of Sir David Walker to the chairmanship of Barclays has alarmed Barclays' own traders, who fear that tighter regulation will mean the end of big bucks and big bonuses. I wonder how far you would get going into that world 
and urging on the senior executives and junior traders, the elders and the young men of Barclays, by urging on them humility and the life of service. And I mention it because humility is now a recognized virtue in our society. It wasn't in the ancient world, incidentally, but after centuries of Christian influence, it is among us. And there's a danger that a sermon on humility, on eagerness for service, on the absence of greed, will be heard as a sermon on a virtue that's commendable, that we can somehow all put into effect, the sort of thing one expects in a church. The French Revolution proclaimed the virtue of equality, of no one better than anyone else, and then promptly undermined that by perpetuating appalling horrors because actually it turned out that equality wasn't all that much believed in as a virtue after all. And that's why it matters what we said to Bryony. This fight lasts until death, and then there is a victory parade for each soldier, and a crown of glory that will never fade away. Peter understood that virtue is not its own reward. I talked to to Roger after the service and asked him how he is now. Uh, relative to how he was seven years ago. And he will have a story to tell you of all kinds of thanksgiving to God for the ways in which life is different uh, for him now. And today is just the, the, the most recent remarkable step. But for a story like Roger's, there will be someone here who has seven years of misery. And they have kept going. And the reality is that nothing in this life will stand up to the full might of the circumstances that life can throw at us. Because nothing in this life stands up to the full might of that wretched twist that is in my heart and yours, putting ourselves first. The only real power to fight that comes from the one who actually, in a historical moment did something about it at the boundaries of life and death. I'm sure, thank God, there are many believers working for Barclays, trying to work out what this passage means in their own responsibilities. But let's not be naive on this nice, warm summer Sunday. We baptize out of a conviction that not a thing has the power to turn Brian's heart and mine and yours, except this one death and one resurrection, and one Lord. This is not a naming ceremony, though we may use Brian's name. It's not a nice outing, though we hope it will be for those who've come some distance. It is rather a fervent prayer that Bryony will find herself among the people who have Jesus as their Lord, who fight valiantly in this life against sin, the world, and the devil. Because of an unfading crown of glory, that will be ours and hers, but only because it was his first. Let's pray together. Lord God, uh, forgive us when we try to take uh, a bit of your word and find in it a bit of virtue, a bit of hope, a bit of something good. 
the starkness of the stress under which uh, this community found itself reminds us of the starkness of the choice. There is either no hope or all the hope in and out of this world. There's either no answer to that twist of sin in our lives that puts ourselves first, or there is the answer that involves a death, a resurrection, a lordship, a return. As we have joined together in this baptism today, may we be encouraged. And as we have heard your word today, may we be reminded of the only hope that there is for each living person on this planet. And with that conviction, may we go into the world that awaits us. In Jesus' name, amen.